Join us at our annual conferences in London, Florida and Sydney to learn everything you need to know about ITAM in the cloud era. For more details, head to itassetmanagement.net forward slash events. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and welcome to our podcast. Today I have Tomas O'Leary from Origina um, on, the, on the podcast. Welcome Tomas. Uh, thank you very much, Martin. I'm very impressed. You managed to get my name right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was pretty, pretty impressive. First time. Thank you very much. First, first time for everything. Excellent. Uh, um, uh, and uh, I mean, we did we did a webinar together recently, uh, and I I put you on the spot about pronouncing your name and gave you two options, and realised both of them were wrong, and you gave me you gave me a third way of pronouncing it. So to, for the benefit of somebody who's not heard of you before, could you give a quick introduction to your first name? Yes, I can. It's a uh, it's a fascinating first name. It's the Doubting Thomas, um, uh, the Gaelic Irish version of it. Tomas is how it's pronounced. There's an accent on the A, which elongates it. Often mistaken, as I said previously to to you a few times, I think uh, I've been mistaken as Polish, Czech, uh, Slovakian, um, and lots of other nationalities. Until actually, until they meet me and see how how pasty white I actually am. So. Uh, then they realised that this guy's not from an exotic part of the world. He's from he's from Ireland. So, uh, uh, but it's lovely to be here. Um, and thanks for thanks for inviting me to to have a have a chat with you today, Martin. You're very welcome. So, you're um, uh, th- thank you for sponsoring our um, conferences um, this year. And people will be able to come along and see you next week at our UK conference. Uh, I'm not sure if this podcast will be going out before then, but um, we're recording this at the start of June and talking of the start of June. So we've literally just heard um, uh, and we haven't prepared this, but I'd like to pick your brains about it, if we may, about the recent Supreme Court ruling on Lexmark. So by means of an introduction, um, Lexmark is a printer company and they make ink cartridges and they have a EULA, I couldn't believe this when I heard this, but they actually have a EULA associated with the ink cartridge that if you um, use the ink cartridge, it assumes that you accepted the EULA, which obviously nobody ever reads. And uh, part of that EULA was you weren't allowed to refill the ink cartridge. Um, they sell, I think they sell one ink cartridge that is refillable and another one that isn't. And the technical difference between the two is just a chip that disables the ability to refill it. And somebody um, wanted to refill their cartridge and went to court. It got escalated and escalated and eventually reached the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court have actually ruled in favour of the end user or the, the, the consumer of the ink cartridge. Um, that's my interpretation of things. Anyway, what, what, do you, what do you think of that decision? And have I interpreted the story correctly? Yeah, you hit, you hit the nail on the head there, Martin. It's 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 mad. Like there's there's so much technology and everything these days that you've got obviously technology and ink cartridges. We've got technology and and almost things we clothing and 
you know, bags, almost everything we have today has got technology in it. And what is, which is great, really, really good, um, some fantastic innovations out there. But actually, what's bizarre about this is that there are some very sly organizations trying to uh, exercise un totally unnecessary controls over that technology um, and the certain rights that people have, have would have expected to, for example, be able to refill the cartridge with pretty much anything they wanted, given they paid for it. Um, and this had to go all the way to the Supreme Court because they actually they used um, a law that was introduced by Bill Clinton back in the day called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which was actually introduced, and correct me, maybe you might know this as well, neither of us, I think, are lawyers, but it was introduced to protect Hollywood and the, as DVDs and, and were becoming more, more popular and, and, and easier to copy, they, would, they tried to introduce some laws to protect copyright, which, to be perfectly honest, was perfectly a legitimate thing to do. But you fast forward 20 odd years and now you have a situation where actually companies are using this same law to uh, exercise rights over stuff that we bought. So in other words, they're saying to people, you bought this, but you can't fill it up with any other ink except our ink. I think you got the same issue with John Deere in the United States recently saying you own to a farmer in the middle of some uh, rural part of, of, of middle America, you have got a problem with your, your tractor, you can't fix it yourself because you can't touch the software. We have to fly in an engineer uh, and get him in a car from the airport and drive to whatever remote part of America you're in or part of the world. And he is the only, or she is the only person allowed to fix that. Um, so you've got to sit there while the sun shines, you've got a one day opportunity to do some work, weather dependent, and you've got to wait. All because actually you don't own the, 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 the truck or the tractor, you don't own the printer that you thought you bought. So what's really good about this, this ruling is the first time it's gone all the way to a Supreme Court and this is the potential to have a, quite a dramatic change on, on how courts perceive the rights of end users uh, over technology, regardless of what's said in the end user license agreement, these EULAs as they're called, um, which many, yeah, we all press buttons on our phone and accept these agreements. I, very, very few of us have even read even the first page of them. And this is the problem. They insert the strangest uh, uh, terms into in these conditions. So, which is great. The right to choose who fixes your stuff, whether that be your printer or who refills your, your stuff, or it would be your tractor, or in the area of both you and I work, Martin, in the whole in the techno IT technology space, and um, who repairs your technology, who can fix your software, what choices you have are really important. Um, and given the fact that, you know, as you know, Martin, my background is in the secondary market. I have a business that that's what we do. We, we help people make choices, um, but only because those choices exist. Um, and we need to have so, uh, rulings like this more and more of them as they happen are going to empower end users to make decisions. It's really powerful stuff. It's, it's, um, Uncharted territory, really, isn't it? Because I think the Millennial Act was, like you say, it's about um, digital rights. And I think if you could, I, I, I agree with you, I'm not an expert either, but I think you, with if the, basically the Millennial Act allowed you to say, if you were in breach of a EULA, if you've breached the terms, 
then we can actually, it's a felony or it's a crime and we can actually convict you because of that. That's the power it gave. But there's nobody, which is which is arguably in a digital world, that's a good thing to protect people's privacy, uh, so they protect their intellectual property and copyright. But there's no, there's no check to that, is there? There's no counter to say, hang on, I can dream up any EULA I want and, uh, in, and enforce it, basically. And I think um, the most extreme, apart from this Lexmark case, which I think is absurd about the cartridges, the other one that I think you shared with me, actually, Thomas, the, um, the video with the guy who, um, I think it was a gaming company, and they, just as an April Fool joke, they said, um, we'll put in that if you click the EULA, we own your soul or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and like 7,000 7, people just accepted it, uh, you know, and are now possessed by the devil. Um, but, yeah, so it's, it's a really um, interesting landmark in that it's, it's, it's recognised that we need to protect the consumer as well. It's not just all about the, the, the uh, well, software companies. Well, look, I mean, there's many businesses will tell you, I'm sure many people listening uh, to this will, will feel that there are times that they, they feel that their, so, their business soul is owned by some of these big, large software companies. Um, and I, and that's, that's one of the problems, is that it's done a, it's done a huge disservice on the IT industry. Um, you know, there's a huge amount of negative activity happening around audits and restrictions and this type of activity where Lexmark actually challenge something that common sense says, of course you should be able to do this. Yet they are so obsessed and so full of either uh, legal representatives or yeah, people who are so particular about the rules that are, they think are designed exclusively for their benefit, and they're not. The rules are designed for the market, to keep the market uh, um, uh, in a positive state. It's not designed purely to uh, line the pockets of these large organizations. And I think that's one of the one of the real issues going on in the world today is that you see, and it's not just it's not just in the software industry, uh, um, it's across the whole internet. Um, that there's been, it's more of a wild west uh, out there. There's no, there, there are zero, zero rules. And the guy with the biggest gun, um, which in IT is usually the, the guy with the biggest pocket and, and, and got, the, got the toughest lawyers, is the guy who rules the roost. And I think what's happening though, which is really nice, is that you're starting to see a change. You're starting to see a change. As, as you know, Martin, one of the things that I'm involved in is an organization called Free ICT Europe. Um, and I've also been involved at the early stages of a similar lobby group who have been talking about this ruling we talked about at the top of the, top of the podcast um, uh, called Repair.org in the United States. So we have been trying to talk to the European Commission to make them aware that there is a lot of abuse of, of market rules going on, um, some of it very subtle. And it's not in the interest of taxpayers. It's not in the interest of businesses, because ultimately what they end up doing is, is paying over amounts of money or making changes to their environment that really aren't necessary, that don't add, add value. And in today's world, with the pressure we're all under, it has to be value orientated. It has to be, there has to be some return. And you know, a lot of this, this spending and activity that happens in the software industry is, is wasted. There's huge portions of the industry, and that's wasted in every industry, as you know, not, you pick any industry at all, you'll see the same thing. But it's, 
it, it's it's it, this can be fixed very easily. It, it, this industry is not around that long. It's relatively new, and it doesn't need to have the same sort of hangovers as other industries have. And it seems to be developing the exact same trends as some of the more some other industries that are that are inefficient. Well, financial services is a classic one, you know, um, which is brought havoc when it's when it's in a bad shape and in a bad place, you know, every, every couple of decades. Um, and we don't we don't need that. It's not necessary in the IT industry. It might require some some rules and. It might require some people to come along and say, okay, we have to put some rules around this. I mean, I think you've talked about this before, Martin, around your campaign for clear licensing, which I, I really like that, that, that activity you do. It's about clarity. It's really about saying to people, you know, there are certain things that are allowable and important, you know, protecting IP, protecting, allowing people to invest and feel they can get a return. But there's at a certain stage in, in the process, there has to be then some, there's a balance checks and balances and it's like everything in life there's always checks and balances and i just think it's what's happened in it and lots of many portions of it those those there's an absence of of those checks and balances and it and it adds um, whole new dimensions to the market as well because it, using the example of your john deere tractor if you have bought this tractor that's so loaded with electronics that when you sell it on to somebody um is it going to be just a, a brick that's not of any use because you don't, you know, you didn't buy it originally from John Deere. You bought it in the secondary market and therefore you don't have access to all the software on it. And it's, you know, or even when you buy a, um, a VW, um, you know, you need to be a bit of a guru to understand the engine management system. Um, just, you know, and, and all the software involved with it. It's, it's, it adds whole new dimensions to the secondary market, doesn't it? It does, but the secondary market has dealt with those challenges no matter how complicated the technology was because in traditionally the secondary market has been able to access at a fair price or in a fair way the same information that the primary market can access. That's been how markets have typically developed. Um, when you end up in situations where the primary market, as in the manufacturers of these goods or the publishers of software, uh, lock it down, um, use rules to their advantage and prevent proper ownership, you know, in a way that's not clear either. So when you buy something, if I rent something, I know I've rented it, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. But if I buy something, I expect it to be mine. I expect to be able to stick it on the wall, uh, sit on it, watch my TV on it, throw it out the window if I feel like as long as doing any damage to anybody else. But I can't do that, apparently, because actually, you know, I, don't, I own all of it except for this, this line of code or these lines of code that went out. I can't even use it. So what does it actually mean for certain products this collection of plastic and aluminium and silicon and wires, what does it mean? Actually, it means in many cases that if you remove the ownership of the code, um, then what, have I, what do I own? I own, that's what I own. I own the raw materials, which are absolutely zero use to me. Um, and what there's also that, that's interesting about that is if you think about it, go back to the, what I mentioned earlier about the financial services industry, huge portions of these assets are financed. You know, asset financing companies come in and say, what's going to be the residual value of this over the next three to five years? And they put a value on it, expected value of whatever it is, it's going to be worth 20% of the original purchase price or 30%. But that gets depreciated over time. And there are times when they come along and they have to sell it early. But actually, if you say, if you actually look at that closely and say, well, actually, that asset is actually not worth anything if there's no right to sell it on, potentially, or a third party as an original manufacturer of the equipment can prevent that sale by saying, ah, well, you own the, 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 the collection of, 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 
of materials, but the license that runs everything is ours, and we'll decide whether you can transfer that. So the asset financing companies either get the permission of them to be able to sell it off if they need to, or they actually then got to write that asset down to zero value from day one or day, day one plus <laughs> zero plus one. It's like, so it has a huge ramification on this. It's about ownership. It's about value. And I think that this is, this, this needs to be really seriously looked at by, by legislators um, and politicians and the, and the general, general business public. You know, we need to be very focused on this and not allow a small number of organizations um, uh, keep control of, 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 uh, of this fantastic industry of ours. So um, talking of industry and, and your focus, um, could, I, could I pick your brains about IBM because they're your, your key focus? Um, yeah. Could you tell me or, or, or tell the listeners rather about your background with IBM and what the company does and where you think IBM is going? Because we've, we've done a webinar together recently about IBM renewals in particular and yeah. illustrated the fact that over the last five years, IBM is banking from a from a revenue point of view, and it's an it's a, unfortunately for them, it's a it's a ski slope downwards in terms of quarterly revenue. What's happening yeah. to them, and and, and where, why does your business exist, and and what's happening there? Yeah, I think um, the reason we exist is be, is because of uh, the fact that there's for two reasons. One, there is an emergence of a secondary market in software. Um, people are choosing the right to select third parties to, to maintain software assets in the same way as they've done for data center assets or any other asset and technology assets in the past. So uh, that's been emerging over the last five to 10 years. Um, we're one of the first companies to target IBM exclusively. Um, why have we picked IBM? I guess they are the um, third, fourth biggest software company. They have, I, I believe, the third biggest software maintenance revenue stream. So in terms of the assets that are out there, how much they charge for, for maintenance uh, for the products. So it's a logical that the people will come into that market and go after it. And we're one of, 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 a, of a small number of companies around the world have done that and one of the few that are totally focused on it. But if you look at IBM and say, wh why, why is this an attractive business for us to be in? Well, it's very attractive because IBM today does not actually sell a huge amount of, of new software. Um, if you strip out you know, recent software acquisitions, it's traditional software sales is, has, been, has been just about teetering um, on, on a flat line or declining, depending on the product range. Some products declining quite rapidly. Um, and a huge portion of the revenue is made up of two areas. One, one you know very well about, and many of your listeners will know software audit. Okay, so all the software vendors have big, big portions of the revenue. But the second big portion of the revenue is software maintenance. And when you consider many of the companies that have IBM software assets probably have had them for 10, 15, 20 years, their requirement to stay on a the absolute latest version or a version that's going to come out of that software in the future is probably for many cases not going to happen. They're going to go somewhere else. They're going to maybe with IBM, maybe most likely with somebody else though, because you look at IBM's numbers, it's been declining 20 quarters of revenue decline across the board, across all product ranges. Some have been hit worse than others. Software now for the first time in the last couple of quarters really taken a hit. IBM will be a company that has a revenue, I predict this year, of sub $80 billion for the first time 
since 1998. We've got to go back all the way to 1998 to look and see when was the last time IBM had a revenue that was below $80 billion on an annual basis. That's extraordinary. Now, I know they've sold some businesses, a um, couple of high revenue businesses, but they've bought a lot of companies along that journey. Um, so um, really, uh, the opportunity for us as a business and for anyone who's listening who has software assets is that you've got to really look hard and say, what am I doing with these assets? And why am I spending so much money still on maintaining those assets uh, with IBM? When one, the actual cost is, is outrageous uh, and the value is pretty low. But two, actually, they have been letting go huge portions of their staff. They've been doing this for a number of years, plus they've been also outsourcing their development, future development support of their own products. That's what they call it. So they did it recently with Informex. They've done it with you know, many other products, typically workload schedule, many others over the last um, uh, um, number of years. So they're pushing more and more of the develop, future development of the products to third parties. Uh, that, but, so they'll hold on to the IP. But in truth, the trend of any industry that's ever done that before, there's no development of any notes going to happen in the future because it's not their product. They're going to use it as a as a as an opportunity to 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 just collect as much money uh, over the next three to five to ten years from those assets. And what we're saying to people is that those are perpetually licensed assets that you don't need to give them any more money unless you feel you have to. And there so, are options out there. So if you if IBM, let's say that they continue to decline. Does that yeah. mean that your business has a shelf life? Well, all businesses have a shelf life, Martin. Um, in my view, I think the the days of you having a hundred year business plan are are as, as as many Japanese companies would have had in the past, and even European ones. There, they don't. I don't believe they exist. You know, you look at even. Um, how long is the iPhone out? It's just uh, 10 years, is it? Yeah. It's just this yeah. year, you know, and it's it's already in a decline. You know, a product that's 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 revolutionised the, the world uh, is already technically in 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 its mature stage of life. Um, so I think I think the, the the nature of business. Yes, the truth is we're building a business that can be deconstructed if necessary down the line. Okay, so what does that mean? It means it has to have levels of, I think all businesses should have this anyway, have levels of flexibility that it can flex to grow, okay, but it also can flex to shrink if it needs, okay, and there should be nothing wrong with that because we talked earlier IBM shrinking to $80 billion. That's actually not a problem by itself. That's actually okay if, they, if there was identifiable areas of growth, okay, um, or if they if it was accepted by the shareholders. The problem is the traditional shareholders of companies like IBM will always want to see growth. Um, and the only way they've been getting away with what they've been doing is because they generate so much cash because they've got such profitable product lines like their software maintenance, like their mainframe, that generates so much cash every year. They've been giving it to the shareholders to keep them quiet, in my view. Uh, you now have a situation potentially in the next five years, they will not have the cash. So what will happen? You'll see their share price drop significantly. A lot of the support that they have currently in the market will disappear. You've already seen it with Warren Buffett recently. So, um, and it's not just IBM. There are many other companies in the in the in the uh, in the IT industry that have that have similar challenges. Um, it just happens as IBM is the one I know quite well. So, yes, our business is built on a, on a model, a flexible business plat model that allows us to to flex and to to decline. You know, you look at Uber, you look at Airbnb. They're classic 
organizations that are built the same way. They're built around communities. They haven't had to build um, uh, hotel rooms in every city. They've accessed resources. We've done the same thing with IBM's resources. So we've tapped into the very resources that end users want to use. We've tapped into those. We haven't had to build offices around the world to do this. We've just tapped into the resources and built a command and control platform to allow those resources and the end users connect in a legal way um, so that they can take so they can have their assets looked after in a much more cost-effective manner. And just a couple of um, stats that spring to mind just to support that. I think um, I read somewhere that it was, I think over 80% of the Fortune 1000 or something, or Fortune 100 didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago or something. Um, you know, the, the, the longevity of companies is, is no longer so important or, or, or prevalent. Um, and yeah. also, I think it was Airbnb have got an enormous market cap versus you know somebody somebody like Hilton, and they don't yeah. and yet they don't own a single property, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. remarkable really. Um, yeah. So um, I, I'd like to reference another company that's prevalent in your industry uh, that does support for Oracle, which is Rimini Street. So they are an alternative to people that don't want to spend money with Oracle, but one of the things that are notorious with Rimini Street, and maybe this is part of their marketing plan, is that they all always seem to be in court fighting against um, Oracle. So what what are you doing differently? And what, what's your view of, of that sort of ongoing spat with Oracle? Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I'm not privy to the, the details other than what's what's um, what's what I've read in, in, in publications and what's come out of the court cases. I mean, my my own sense on, on what happened there, and it's not just remedy suit or not. It's not Oracle will will go after anybody who who they feel infringes their 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 IP, whether it's correct or not. Um, but my own sense of the leaving remedy suit aside, I do have a comment on the, on, on the software third-party software market and any any third-party market and this is a challenge for all um, repair type um, companies who are trying to do it independently but given the amount of software now that's in all devices so we are exclusively software of course okay but but you try and repair anything else whether it be a car or a tractor or, or, anything, or an inkjet printer as we mentioned earlier you're, you're going to have a challenge because the software in there there's the IP in there um, and one of the issues I feel, and maybe one of the benefits that we have, our, our approach in Origina has been always exclusively looking at the rights, okay, and what the contracts actually say and what the license agreements actually say as they stand today, okay. And um, if you come from a from that perspective, your chances of infringing the intellectual property rights of the publisher are much much lower, okay. The, my belief is that traditionally most companies who've come into this market have taken a different view. They've come in at a technical level. They've seen the challenges as technical challenges, and they're not. They are uh, legal contractual challenges to be able to fix software. Because remember, software is a product that has a significant revenue stream. It's around $200 billion a year is spent maintaining software, yet it is physically cannot be touched in any shape or form. So how do you, how do you maintain a 
piece of technology that you physically can't touch. You can interface with a keyboard, with that's hardware, so you can't physically touch it. So how do you maintain that piece of software? And this is the one of the challenges. And our view, you have to understand what the rights and entitlements are. So when we provide maintenance to an IBM uh, asset owner, it, we're dealing with their license with IBM. And it's very important for me, we're all clear what that is. And while there are, there are certain standardizations, everybody might have a slightly different version of, of, of those rights. And once we know what those rights, what our platform does, it's like it puts a pair of X-ray specs on the technicians. So when they step in to do some work on behalf of that client, they don't just look at it from the point of view of a technical issue, which is obviously potentially what the issue is, but also what can be done to address that issue. How can that be fixed? Can it be fixed just by downloading some code that you may or may not be entitled to, or accessing and making a fix in a different way? So you need to understand how can you, how can you make those fixes. Um, I believe that the problems that all the companies that have been challenged in this industry have had come stem from that not investigating enough what the rights and entitlements are before they've, they've actually tried to fix the problem. So one of the um, things we've been discussing recently is about um, uh, Russia dumping IBM, uh, Tomas. So what, what what do you think on, on this, uh, an entire... Uh, country dumping IBM what what's your could you maybe give some background to that and what do you think of that yeah this is this is something we wrote about recently uh, um, uh, so the uh, the state Duma uh, which is the Russian equivalent of the, the House of Commons is, is you're very familiar with them um, they have um, um, they've drafted legislation that proposes banning uh, government by bodies buying licensed software at all not not just IBM software. They they have they 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 happen to to have picked on the um, IBM amongst other uh, software vendors to say their view is that actually they want to um, stop state organisations and state bodies buying licensed software. Now consider that they will be all be um, third. They will all be um, organisations that are based in the United States. Um, this information. May, this may change, given what's happening with, between the U.S. and Russia at the moment. Um, we don't know whether Russia are friend or foe. <laughs> it's very hard to tell. Um, you know, the news that's emanating out of Washington at the moment. But I think what's interesting about this is that this is an entire state saying, actually, what we want to do is we want to we want to actually move our entire country over to open source. Now. We've seen similar conversations happen at a European level, where there this this challenge that is, exists in the world, where most state organisations and private organisations, if they're as a non-American, they do have a there's a, there's as nationalism is beginning to uh, get, become more prevalent. You've got challenges, obviously in the US, it's happening, but also it's happening here in Europe. So Europe is taking a more European view. Um, which is going to create some, some, some issues. And you see it after the recent visit of, of President Trump, but also in, in Russia and other parts of the world are going to take the same view. Now, if the writer, people who write software, written software traditionally are American companies, what does that mean? That's, that's a potential challenge for, for US organizations. Um, and it's questionable whether some of the moves and nationalistic moves that are happening are going to be good for some of these companies in the longer, longer term. Um, time will tell, 
but this is interesting, yeah, that you know, particularly given Russia's dominance of the news in, in the United States, the fact that it's targeting products like IBM WebSphere um, and saying that there's actually open source alternatives to it um, and the fact that they're saying, you know, we don't, they are claiming some of this to do with security concerns, but when you say security concerns in Russia in the same sentence, uh, you may not mean the same security concerns that we're normally used to talking about in the IT industry. So, uh, uh, yes, I think it's a fascinating, uh, you know, piece, uh, piece of news that came out in the last number of months, and um, it'll be very interesting to see where it, where this goes, and also to see do other uh, states or um, uh, you know broader state organisations like the European Commission or European Union do they start to do some some of the same things? It'll be interesting to see. It's interesting that um, you, you mentioned about um, Russia dominating the news. I, I think they are, um, I mean, this is not IT stuff, this is more political, but um, I, I read somewhere that um, Italy actually has a bigger economy than Russia, but you don't hear about what the Italians are up to, do you? So kudos to Russia and their PR team, their global PR news team for, for punching above their weight and um, putting their news out there. Um, but I'm, I'm seeing I'm seeing more and more of that. I'm seeing um, uh, I mean, I was at a uh, 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 an event with a company called Snow Software who are based out of Sweden. And we've done some work with uh, Nextthink, who are Swiss and obviously your, yourselves who are Irish. And it's fantastic to be working with some European based IT companies. And that's not anti US sentiment. That's just pro European sentiment. And it's, uh, I think that will be increasingly the case, especially when you get some of these large software companies that are not really acting like software companies. They're, they're acting like conglomerates. And I'm thinking of people like um, Microfocus, who are, they're not really a software company. They're a conglomerate that owns IP and looks to screw as much revenue out of people as they can using that IP. They're not really innovating. Um, so it'd be very interesting how these big conglomerates go forward. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I was at a conference recently in uh, Las Vegas, and I happened to have a casual conversation with a head of a private equity firm from Europe, and we were talking about Microfocus, actually, and he was telling me um, that he had seen a trend in investment world where companies are putting money together, and they're trying to buy, create create an organization that buys up software assets for the sole purpose of going after the end users and shaking them down. Right. This is what he told me. It was a, it was a casual conversation. Yeah. But the shakedown is what he said. Um, so it was I, so it was fascinating that, that, that this is starting to happen. We're going to see what we see in large corporations predominantly over the last 10, 15 years around audits and changes like that. But we're going to see it much more um, within the SME sector as well, um, you know, the, whatever the prevalent technology outside of Microsoft that, that that many SME companies use, you're going to start to see those see those products being targeted, maybe by industry. So you got that maybe, uh, who knows how they'll do it, but this is what's going to happen. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, the embarrassing thing about all of this is that Microfocus is an English company um, based just just an hour up the road. Uh, but I think yeah. they, bought, they merged or bought um, HPE, the software side of HP's software. And um, it is. I, I just uh, th that signal to me was that that 
HP software's legacy and the software's gone to die at Microfocus and we're going to milk as much as we can because the innovation has gone and we're going to screw people as much as we can based on all the legacy software that's installed everywhere. That's the business model, yeah. I think. They'll, yeah. dress, they'll yeah. dress it up all sorts of ways, but ultimately that's the business model. Yeah, when you spend 8.8 .8 billion, whatever it was they spent on HP's software assets, um, yeah, that's what they're going to do. <laughs> Yeah. So, so final question for you, um, just um, any views on IBM in terms of their audit tactics, the volume of uh, audits that they're, they're doing at the moment and changes to their licensing model? What are you seeing at the moment? What's, what's the market doing in terms of IBM? Yeah, um, I, the, the biggest thing we see, yeah, you mentioned audit, we see that continuing. We see it happening more regularly. Um, it, very rarely we come across organizations who've told us they haven't been audited. It, we do meet a few. The first thing I always tell them is that if you haven't been audited, you will be. So you better have your house in order and you better be prepared for it. Um, so as, are they more aggressive or less aggressive? I think they're the same, to be fair to say. I don't think anything's changed. They, we haven't seen any massive changes in the last six to 12 months. Um, they have started making some subtle changes in process around access to to um, uh, uh, fixes in the background they're trying to make it more difficult so that's why we all we always will encourage organizations that we take on to, to make sure they download the fixes even though the right um, remains in place post the end of the support contract it's much easier just to get it when you're when, when, when the door is open as opposed to trying to go back and knock at the door afterwards um, we also see the decline. I mean, IBM's software uh, maintenance revenues are declining uh, quite quickly. Um, one, because they are, where they can, converting companies into uh, subscription licenses. So that's expected by us. So we, we, we knew that when we started this journey, that that's, that's the, the market we're going after is a declining market. Um, we estimate that, it, you know, we did some research with Forrester Research recently, and had a look at their numbers and you know there's maybe 11% decline between um, 16 and 17 expected in terms of the, the overall software maintenance spend on IBM but actually going looking out to 2020 that's expected to go down as low as 6% so um, we're, we're, we're expecting to see that drop to about 6% decline when you've got a, um, a revenue stream of about uh, seven seven billion dollars uh, you know it, it it's, it's like they're big drops, but there's a, there's a lot of way. There's a long way to go, and we believe actually that should increase over time the decline because what will happen is people will uh, start more aggressively to move their uh, maintenance to people like us. Um, they will um, uh, they will either switch then or they'll switch to off the IBM platforms completely, um, or they'll go as you described it. They'll go naked. So microfocus buying IBM wouldn't be a bad move, would it? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Buy their software assets, yeah. Yeah. You could mention that to them if you see them. <laughs> okay. Well, um, Tomas, thank you very much for your time on the podcast today. Look forward to seeing you next week at our conference. And uh, yep. we'll leave details on the podcast notes about how to get hold of Thomas via LinkedIn or email and so on and so forth. 
Yeah, and we're we're actually looking forward to if anyone is listening to this from the United States, we're actually we're over in September if they, this comes out after the London conference. We're over in the end of September in St. Petersburg, Florida. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. In yeah September. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Right. All right. Thanks, Thomas. Speak to Thank you. Soon. Thank you, Martin. Join us at our annual conferences in London, Florida and Sydney to learn everything you need to know about ITAM in the cloud era. For more details, head to itassetmanagement.net forward slash events.